Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. This week, we're releasing a two-part series on autoimmune diseases hosted by medical student Alicia Podwojniak. This is part one. Hope you enjoy. Hey, future doctors. Thanks for tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Alicia Podwojniak. I'm a student at Rowan Virtua School of Osteopathic Medicine, and I will be your host for this episode. Today we'll be covering another super high-yield topic, rheumatologic autoimmune diseases. And of course, there are more autoimmune diseases than these, but these are the ones likely covered in your rheumatology blocks. We'll be covering rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, scleroderma, Sjogren's syndrome, dermatomyositis, and polymyositis. And of course, understand that some of these conditions could have an hour dedicated just to them alone, but I'm going to try to keep it high yield and concise without sacrificing any important points for understanding. It will be a two-part series, so be sure to tune into both to make sure all of the content is covered. And as always, I'll be asking a lot of questions throughout, so try your best to pause, give it your best guess, and if you get it wrong, it's no big deal. This is your learning experience and just another form of reviewing this material. All right, so with that being said, let's dive right into it. Starting generally with what an autoimmune disease is. It's a disease in which the body's immune system attacks healthy cells. Do you know which immunologic phenomenon fails that leads to the development of autoimmune diseases? Nice job. It's the failure of T-cell tolerance, or the ability for an immune cell to recognize itself. So let's start with a case and then we can pull it apart. Let's say we have a 41-year-old woman with a 20-year history of tobacco use and she presents with joint stiffness and pain of the hands and wrists for the last four months. She reports more severe symptoms when she first wakes up, but notes they seem to improve once she starts moving. She reports an unintentional weight loss of 10 pounds with low-grade subjective fevers in the mornings and she also notes fatigue. When you start your physical exam, you notice tenderness on the MCP joints bilaterally. So which disease do you think we're describing here? Nice job, rheumatoid arthritis. And so in this case, we mostly mostly go through the presenting signs and symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis. Do you know if it's more common in women or men? Nice job, it's more common in women. And what about the common age range? Nice job, 30s to 50s. And additionally, in this case, I included a key risk factor, which was smoking. So we also notice she has joint stiffness and pain that are worse in the morning, typically for greater than one hour, and improve with use. This is a key differentiating factor from another commonly tested condition known as osteoarthritis. So remember, if you see joint pain that's worse in the morning and improves with use, think about rheumatoid arthritis. Now we noticed in this case tenderness of her joints. Is the presentation of tenderness in rheumatoid arthritis normally symmetric or asymmetric? Nice, it's normally symmetric, which is another differentiating factor from osteoarthritis. And the way that I always remembered this was knowing that rheumatoid arthritis is systemic, so it's more likely to affect both sides equally as compared to osteoarthritis, which is due to overuse. So for example, the left knee might undergo more wear and tear than the right, which would lead to an asymmetric presentation in osteoarthritis. 
Also, which joints specifically are more likely to be affected in rheumatoid arthritis? Nice job. The MCP, which is the metacarpal phalangeal joint, or your knuckles, and the PIP, which is the proximal interphalangeal joint, as well as the wrist and the feet. Can you think of some ways to describe the findings we might see in a joint affected by rheumatoid arthritis? I tend to have buzzwords that can make them easily identifiable. Nevertheless, I think it's best to have a visual representation of these findings both for the boards and real life. But we can see something called the swan neck deformity, which is PIP joint hyperextension and flexion of the DIP joint, and it sort of resembles a swan's neck. Also, there's the boutonniere deformity, which is extension at the knuckles and DIP joint with flexion at the PIP joint. Visually, it's the exact opposite of the swan neck deformity. We can also see ulnar deviation of the fingers and subcutaneous nodules known as rheumatoid nodules. So going back to the joints, we need to have an understanding of what causes the pain in rheumatoid arthritis. And that is the autoimmune inflammation that induces formation of something known as a panis, which is basically granulation tissue that begins to erode articular cartilage and bone. So similar to how osteoarthritis involves erosion of cartilage and bone, rheumatoid arthritis does the same thing, but it's for a different reason. And that reason is autoimmune destruction rather than overuse degradation. So speaking of autoimmune destruction, what is the name, or what are the names, of the two antibodies that are seen in rheumatoid arthritis? Nice job. So it's the rheumatoid factor and the anti-CCP antibody, which stands for anti-cyclic citrullinated peptide antibody. And do you know which of these two antibodies is more specific for rheumatoid arthritis? Nice job. It's the anti-CCP antibody. And do you know what specifically rheumatoid factor is? Great. So it's an IgM antibody that targets the IgG FC region. And the way that I always tried to remember this was to know that the IgM antibodies are more of an acute onset antibody and IgG are more long term. So I always thought of it as the acute attacking the long term. Not sure if that'll help you, but I just figured I'd mention it in case it worked for anyone the way it worked for me. So although these two lab tests give you some really huge clues that you're dealing with rheumatoid arthritis, there's a few other lab tests that we could see with rheumatoid arthritis. And do you know what they are? It's okay if not. It's a bit of a read my mind question, but I was going for inflammatory markers, which would include ESR and CRP. And although these are nonspecific, they can help give a clue to an inflammatory process. So we noted earlier that smoking is a risk factor, but it's understood that rheumatoid arthritis, along with many autoimmune diseases, develop as a result of genetic and environmental factors. So do you know which HLA genetic subtype has the highest association with development of rheumatoid arthritis? Nice job. It's the HLA DR4. And I always thought that the 4 looked like a capital A, so in my mind I would read HLA-DR4 as HLA-DRA-RA for rheumatoid arthritis. Next we noticed that this patient had systemic symptoms, and this makes sense, as this is an autoimmune disease and thus can affect the entire body. 
we notice fatigue, weight loss, and subjective fevers, all of which are clues leading to an inflammatory process. Now, I don't think that this conversation would be complete without understanding that there are some extraarticular symptoms that we can see with rheumatoid arthritis. Can you think of some of them? Nice. So we can see interstitial lung disease, pleuritis, pericarditis, anemia of chronic disease, something called Felty syndrome, which is a combination of neutropenia and splenomegaly with rheumatoid arthritis. We could also see amyloidosis, carpal tunnel syndrome, and Kaplan syndrome, which is a combination of rheumatoid nodules and pneumoconiosis. Now, I know that's a lot, but I think the main idea here is to understand that rheumatoid arthritis is systemic, and it's not just limited to the joint space. We can see debilitating extraarticular symptoms, which is what makes this condition so severe, but I wouldn't necessarily remember them as a list. But just understand that rheumatoid is systemic, and it can lead to these potential developments. You need to be able to recognize them. With that being said, there's a few more severe complications that can come from rheumatoid arthritis. So there's something called the atlantoaxial subluxation. So you always want to be cautious when manipulating the neck of someone with rheumatoid arthritis. And for any osteopathic students listening, keep this in mind during the COMLEX exam if they ask about performing cervical OMT on a patient with rheumatoid arthritis. Another severe complication would be nephrotic syndrome from amyloidosis. And it's important to know that a majority of the mortality associated with rheumatoid arthritis comes from the cardiovascular complications. Now, treatment of rheumatoid arthritis is extensive, and it's always changing, with new drugs constantly being developed. But for the sake of the boards, there's a few key drugs to know. Do you know the various drug classes used to treat rheumatoid arthritis? So there's NSAIDs, steroids, and DMARDs, which are disease-modifying agents, and they include drugs like methotrexate, TNF-alpha inhibitors like Interocept, hydroxychloroquine, and sulfasalazine. Typically, methotrexate is used as first line, and the other drugs, like TNF inhibitors or biologics, can be added to the treatment regimen. NSAIDs and steroids are commonly used for breakthrough pain, but we don't want to keep someone with a chronic disease like rheumatoid arthritis on these drugs long term. Do you know why? Well, mainly because of the many side effects that can come from long-term steroid use, such as adrenal suppression, osteopenia, infection risk, and insulin resistance, to name a few. Also, for long-term NSAID use, we really increase the risk of having GI bleeds. Now, there's another high-yield drug association that I wanted to include in this episode. I think it's really important, and it seems to come up quite often on the board exams. So if you are considering placing a patient on a TNF-alpha inhibitor, such as Interocept, what is a key test you want to run before starting this medication? Nice. You want to check for tuberculosis, because we know that tuberculosis is kept in check by TNF-alpha. So if we inhibit TNF-alpha, we run the risk of allowing any potential latent tuberculosis to reactivate. Okay, so that was long, but we have a lot more to go. Next up is lupus. So the pathogenesis of lupus is fully unknown, but similar to other autoimmune diseases, it is believed to be a combination of genetic and environmental factors. With lupus, we get autoantibodies targeting something that is so critical to, well, everything. Do you know what this is? 
So in lupus, there are autoantibodies to DNA, along with complement and inflammation, and you get autoantibody precipitation in many organs in the body. So if you think about it, having the autoantibody being directed at DNA, it would make sense that lupus has such a vast presentation and can involve so many different organ systems. So let's talk about some risk factors and epidemiologic aspects to lupus. Which population is lupus most commonly seen in? Nice job. It's most commonly seen in females of reproductive age and usually people of African American descent. Do you know what the various presentations of lupus are? Well, we know it can have different manifestations, but some common presentations include the malar rash or the butterfly rash, constitutional symptoms like fever, fatigue, weight loss, arthralgias, sensitivity to the sun, and renal manifestations. Typically, the symptoms come and go in flares and remissions. And do you know what the famous butterfly rash is referring to? So it describes a raised or flat erythematous rash that's on the cheeks and the nose, but it spares the nasolabial fold. And this is a key. It's really important to recognize this describer because there's other conditions that have similar rashes. But when they describe the sparing of the nasolabial fold, I want you to think about lupus. So let's talk about the lab findings and antibody top types in lupus. This is super high yield in my opinion. Do you know what the best initial test is for suspicion of lupus? Nice, the ANA or anti-nuclear antibody. One important fact of understanding regarding this test is its sensitivity and specificity. Do you know what they are for this? Well, it has a high sensitivity and a low specificity, meaning you can capture a lot of people with a positive ANA who have lupus but not all people with lupus have a positive ANA, and likewise, there are many people who have a positive ANA who do not actually have lupus, and thus the low specificity. But do you know which two antibodies are highly specific to lupus? Nice, so it's the anti-Smith antibody and the anti-double-stranded DNA. Regardless, if you're asked a question that is tying in lupus and statistics, it is important to understand that these two have high specificity, low sensitivity, meaning that if these tests are positive, there's a very high chance that the person actually has lupus. And in my opinion, this is less high yield, but for completeness sake, which of these two antibodies has associated poor prognostic factor? And it might also be tied to having lupus nephritis. So this one is the anti-double-stranded DNA. All right, so another high-yield concept regarding lupus is drug-induced lupus. Can you list a few drugs that have an association with the development of drug-induced lupus? Nice job. So it's hydralazine, isoniazid, and procanamide. I like to use the mnemonic HIP. And do you know which antibody is specific to drug-induced lupus? Nice, the antihistone antibody. So you want to be careful if you're given a case presentation of a patient taking, let's say, isoniazid and presents with lupus-like symptoms. They might ask which antibody, if positive, is the most telling. And then they'll try to trick you by throwing in some of the other antibodies that we've discussed. But the correct answer in this case would be antihistone antibody. 
and there's some other lab findings regarding lupus to be mindful of. They include a decreased C3 and C4, an elevated ESR, and a potential pancytopenia, as well as an increased PTT. So moving on to the wide variety of manifestations and potential developments associated with lupus. Can you think of a few? If you were thinking renal, cardiovascular, or throm thrombosis, you would be correct. So starting with lupus nephritis, which is, by the way, one of the most serious manifestations. Do you know what the pathogenesis of this manifestation is? Nice job. It is immune complex deposition in the glomeruli. And as a side note, do you know which type of hypersensitivity reaction this would be? I'll give you a hint. Consider the fact that it involves immune complex deposition. Nice job. It would be a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction. And what might you expect to see on light microscopy? Nice job. You would expect to see wire looping of the glomerular capillaries, describing diffuse proliferative glomerulonephritis, which is type 4, and also the most common. Although I won't go into the other types during this talk, just be mindful that, are, that there are six different forms of lupus nephritis, and type 4 is the most common. Additionally, patients with lupus can develop something called an antiphospholipid syndrome, which increases their risk of thrombosis and atherosclerosis. They develop this hypercoagulable state due to a specific autoantibody. Can you think of its name? It's called the lupus anticoagulant, and it increases the risk for blood clot development. And there's one last high-yield manifestation to cover. Uh, it's a specific cardiac manifestation that's associated with lupus. Can you think of the name? Great job. It's Liebman-Sachs endocarditis. Liebman-Sachs endocarditis is a non-infectious endocarditis characterized by thrombi on the mitral or aortic valves. There are these sterile abnormal growths of tissue around the heart valve. And Liebman-Sachs endocarditis has a specific finding that makes it unique from other types of endocarditis. Do you know what this finding is? So it's that the vegetations are actually seen on both sides of the valve. So with Liebman-Sachs vegetations, they can cause embolic cerebrovascular disease, peripheral arterial embolism, severe valve regurgitations, superimposed infectious endocarditis, the need for high-risk valve surgery, and of course, mortality. And how would it be diagnosed? So it's diagnosed with echocardiography. And lastly, for treatments, there's a wide armory of treatments that can be used, and sometimes they're used for different indications. They each have risks and side effects that must be taken into consideration. So steroids, such as prednisone, are often used for acute flares. Methotrexate and azathioprine are often used for longer-term management. Cyclophosphamide and mycophenolate can be used for lupus nephritis. And antimalarials, such as chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, are sometimes used, especially in patients who have concomitant skin manifestations. And belumumab can sometimes be used for patients who don't respond well to steroids or immunosuppressants. Okay, let's do a quick question. What is the best test to show high specificity for diagnosis of lupus? 1. The antihistone antibody. 2. The anti-Smith autoantibody. 3. ESR and CRP, 
or for the anti-nuclear antibody? Nice job. The correct answer here is 2, anti-Smith autoantibody. Remember we said that this one has high specificity. For 1, the antihistone antibody, this was referring to drug-induced lupus. For 3, ESR and CRP, we know that these are nonspecific inflammatory markers. And answer choice 4, the anti-nuclear antibody, we said has a low specificity for lupus. Alright, moving on to scleroderma. Generally speaking, scleroderma is an autoimmune disease that causes progressive thickening and hardening of the skin and other tissues, like subcutaneous tissues and muscles. It's considered a triad of symptoms, and do you know what makes up the triad? So it's a triad of autoimmunity, non-inflammatory vasculopathy, and collagen deposition with fibrosis. So there's limited and diffuse scleroderma, and also a subtype known as Crest syndrome. Do you know some risk factors and demographics that we see scleroderma most commonly develop? Nice. So it's females more than males, African Americans more than Caucasians, and the age range is younger to mid-range adults. Think around 35 to 50. And let's talk about the overall pathogenesis of scleroderma. Understanding this should really help you understand all of the other symptoms and features that we'll be discussing. So we see excessive collagen and other extracellular matrix content deposition in the skin and organs. We also have fibrotic proliferation of the microvasculature, including the arterioles and small arteries, which contributes to the vasculopathy. We also have chronic inflammation leading to increased fibrosis. There are three autoantibodies in total that relate to scleroderma. Two relate to systemic and one relate to Crest syndrome. And the way that I always remembered this was knowing that the anti-centromere antibody belonged to Crest syndrome. It literally is part of the C in the Crest acronym, which we'll go through shortly. But the other two antibodies I know belong to systemic. Do you know what the other two antibodies are? So it's the anti-SCL70, which is also the anti-DNA topoisomerase 1 antibody, and also the anti-RNA polymerase 3 antibody. And I wish I had a clever way to remember this, but if I'm being honest, it was just something I forced myself to remember. But if you have a clever memory hack, please share it in the comments of this episode. Some other labs to look out for with scleroderma are oftentimes we have a positive ANA, and remember how we said that this test had a very low specificity for lupus. But we also can see an elevated ESR and CRP, as we have seen with many other autoimmune diseases. So, to make it simple and straightforward, scleroderma causes progressive hardening of the vasculature and tissues in the body. Now let's talk about Crest Syndrome. Do you know what this acronym stands for? So it stands for calcinosis cutis, and do you know what this is? It's deposition of calcium in the skin, commonly in the fingertips, and I would encourage you to look up a picture. So the C stands for calcinosis cutis, but it also stands for anti-centromere antibody, which we talked about previously. The R for Raynaud's phenomenon, the E for esophageal dysmotility, the S for sclerodactyly, which is skin induration of the fingers, and T for telangiectasias. Do you know what Raynaud's phenomenon is? 
So it's decreased blood flow to the skin from either cold temperatures or stress, and it causes vasospasms. And it can also cause changing, uh, changing of colors of the affected area, commonly in the digits. Do you know what the color change pattern is? So it normally changes from white to blue to red. All right, so I know uh, it's important to understand that this symptom is in no way specific to scleroderma. In fact, it can be seen in other diseases like lupus, Sjordan syndrome, and many others. But as always, I would encourage you to look up pictures of what some of these other manifestations look like and become really familiar with recognizing them. And question stems regarding the aspect of esophageal dysmotility. So be on the lookout for a case where they describe esophageal dysmotility. And along with all of the other GI disorders you might be tempted to think of, keep Crest syndrome on your differential. Now, limited scleroderma only affects the skin and the muscles, but systemic scleroderma also includes the internal organs like the kidneys, the heart, and the lungs. Systemic scleroderma is more rapidly progressive and can be life-threatening. So moving on to systemic scleroderma, there's involvement of pulmonary, renal, or cardiac systems, and they indicate a more severe prognosis. But what is the presentation of systemic scleroderma? I think the best way is to go through this systematically. Can you think of some skin manifestations for systemic scleroderma? So we can see sclerosis of the skin, and this would manifest as puffy or taut skin without wrinkles, and uh, they might have fingertip pitting. They could have tightening in the face. It's one of the earlier signs, but a patient might appear as if the skin on their face is being pulled really tight. And sometimes it's been described as beak-like because there can be thinning of the lips and a pinched nose. They might also have diffuse pruritus, which is itching. Can you think of some vascular manifestations? So we talked about Raynaud's, which is also shared with Crest syndrome. These patients might also have ulcers and cutaneous and mucosal telangiectasias. What about some GI manifestations? Can you think of a few? Nice. So we can see GERD symptoms, pseudo-obstruction due to abnormal peristalsis. We might also see constipation or incontinence. What about some respiratory symptoms? So we might see progressive dyspnea, chest pain due to pulmonary artery hypertension, we might see a dry, persistent cough due to restrictive lung disease. And what about musculoskeletal symptoms? We might see arthralgias, myalgias, or loss of joint range motion due to joint flexion contractures. Okay, and what about some cardiac manifestations? Can you think of a few here? So again, we might have dyspnea due to congestive heart failure or myocardial fibrosis. We might have symptoms of core pulmonale if there is pulmonary involvement. Do you know how core pulmonale presents? Nice. So usually with jugular venous distension, edema, or hepatomegaly. And what are some renal manifestations of systemic scleroderma? So we can see hypertension, we can see oliguric acute kidney injury, and we can see chronic kidney insufficiency. 
And I know that these systemic symptoms might sound overwhelming, but they really should make a lot of sense if you understand the pathogenesis of hardening of fibrosis, and uh, this occurs in the vasculature and the tissues and the organs. So if you think about smooth muscle dysfunction, for example, this can cause hypertension in the vasculature, it can cause disturbed GI motility, decreased lung expansion, etc. And there's a high yield association known as scleroderma scleroderma renal crisis. Do you know what this is? So it's a life-threatening complication of scleroderma, and it presents with the abrupt onset of severe hypertension, accompanied by rapidly progressive renal failure, failure, hypertensive encephalopathy, and congestive heart failure. You might also see microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. And this next aspect is very high yield. Do you know what the first-line treatment is for this? So it's actually ACE inhibitors. Let's do a few cases and questions from this episode. Let's say we have a 40-year-old woman presenting to your rheumatology office, noting difficulty swallowing. At first, she thought it was just with liquids, but now she notices it with solids as well. She reports an acidic taste in her throat sometimes. On exam, her face appears pulled back, and on exam, you hear dry rails on, while listening to her lungs. Her resting blood pressure is 160 over 90, and she has a positive ANA and a positive anti-DNA topoisomerase 1 antibody. What do you think this case is describing? Nice job. It's describing scleroderma. So we have this woman who comes in. She has esophageal dysmotility. She has GERD symptoms. She has tightening of her skin and an elevated blood pressure. And I also gave you the anti-DNA topoisomerase 1, which is pretty specific for scleroderma. So what are some other lab tests that you would be interested in ordering for this patient? Good. So in this case, I was going for scleroderma, as I just mentioned. So I would be sure to order all of the inflammatory markers, like ESR, CRP, and some of the specific markers, like the anti-centromere antibody and the anti-RNA polymerase 3 since the case already noted that she had a positive anti-DNA topoisomerase 1, I would just want to include the other ones as well. Okay, next case, a 36-year-old woman presents to the dermatology clinic for fatigue, weakness, and fevers for the past month. She notes that she gave birth to her first child six months ago, and she reports a 15-pound weight loss without changing her diet or exercise routine. The reason she's here at your dermatology clinic is because she thinks she developed rosacea. She reports that she burns easily in the sun, and she just generally doesn't feel like herself. What diagnosis are you thinking of? Nice. So I was going for lupus. And what would be some labs you would want to order? So some labs to order would be, again, the ESR CRP. You would run a check the complement, so C3 and C4. You'd want to check the ANA, the anti-Smith antibody, and the anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies as well. And let's say a few years later, this patient notices flank pain. You suspect renal involvement of her lupus. What might you expect to see on histology? Nice job. You would expect to see wire looping, which describes diffuse proliferative glomerular nephritis. All right. Well, I know that was a lot, but for a brief recap, 
Autoimmune diseases are due to failure of our body's immune systems to recognize self. It develops from a failure of, to failure of tolerance. With many of these diseases, we have constitutional symptoms of fevers, fatigue, and myalgias. We also have some nonspecific lab findings like an elevated ESR, CRP, and low complement. For each condition, there are some specific physical exam findings, antibodies, and considerations that should be kept in mind. For rheumatoid arthritis, we have increased pain in the mornings, with decreased pain with movement. We see a positive rheumatoid factor, which is an IgM antibody against an IgG molecule. We also might see an anti-CCP antibody. We often see the MCP, PIP, and wrists as the key joints that are involved, but we also have some extra-articular manifestations to be mindful of. For lupus, we have a wide variety of symptoms, including the constitutional symptoms, and we're likely to see a but butterfly rash, sensitivity to the sun, and other manifestations like renal or cardiac involvement. We'll likely have a positive ANA, as well as a positive anti-double-stranded DNA or an anti-Smith antibody. And if it's drug-induced, we could see a positive antihistone antibody. And lastly, for scleroderma, we have progressive hardening of and sclerosis of many tissues of the body, including the smooth muscle and vasculature, which leads to the key signs and symptoms, which can include skin hardening, Raynaud's phenomenon, esophageal dysmotility, and more serious findings like sclerodermal renal crisis or pulmonary manifestations. With scleroderma, we have a positive anti-SCL70 antibody, or a positive anti-RNA polymerase 3, or also the anti-centromere antibody, if we're only referring to Crest syndrome. Okay, well thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe to our podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under the link for this episode. Good luck with studying, and remember that if you ever have an SOS moment while studying, Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down. Oh, and stay tuned for part two of this episode, where we will finish with Sjogren's Syndrome, Dermatomyositis, Polymyositis, and the Rapid Review.